the children are dismissed for children's church this morning. So if you're a child, you're more than welcome to, to leave. I'm not leaving. I just forgot my Bible. Which is a terrible thing to do as a pastor. Matter of fact, if, if your pastor doesn't have a Bible in the pulpit, you should just go out, leave the church. It's really, really sad. Turn to the Gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of John. We are in our second sermon in the Gospel of John. Again, I'm very thankful um, to open the word that John has given us. And again, last week we said, why did John write his gospel? It's very clear. If you look at John chapter 30, verse 31, why did John write his gospel? He tells us. He says, I write these things. These are written. These things within this gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That you might have life in His name. We're going to be taking up John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, but the, the whole uh, prologue is actually 1 through 18, so I'm going to read all the way through um, 1 through 18. So, hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And we all say together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Again, these words that are the introduction to the Gospel of John are meant for us to see the beauty of Jesus. You know, Jesus, full of grace, Spurgeon said this, and he is full of grace. Ah, had he not been, then I would never have been saved. He drew me when I struggled to escape from his grace, and when at last I came all trembling like a condemned culprit to his mercy seat, he said, your sins, which are many, are all forgiven. And Spurgeon goes on to say, and he is full of truth. 
I bear witness that never has any servant had such a master as I have. Never has any brother had such a kinsman as he has been to me. Never any spouse has such a husband as Christ has been to my soul. Never any sinner had a better Savior. Never any mourner had a better comforter than Christ has been to my heart. I desire none beside him. In life, he is my true life. In death, he shall be the death of death. In poverty, Christ is my true riches. In darkness, he is my son. He is my manna in the poor wilderness world. He shall be heavenly manna when I come to the heavenly Canaan. Jesus is to me all grace and no wrath, all truth and no falsehood. And of grace and truth, he is full and infinitely full. That's who Jesus is. You see, When John is writing his gospel, what he wants us to do is he wants us to look at the beauty of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and he wants us to fall down and worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's painting a picture. And he paints a picture, and we'll get into this picture next week because through um, chapter, really, chapter 1, verse 19, through... um, about verse uh, chapter 12, it's the book of signs. So he shows us who Jesus is working out signs so that people would believe in him. And then in verses in chapters 13 through 21, it's, it's the book of glory as Jesus goes and redeems those and saves us from our sin. But again, in verse 14, we see this again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word. Again, last week I referenced this that this word was so that they would understand, the Jewish reader would understand that he was the great creator God through all things were created through him and for him, but also that there was this idea within the Greek world um, around the 6th BC by Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher, who thought this. He thought about the fact that things constantly change. How is there order in the world? His answer was the logos, the word or reason of God. This was the principle that held everything together in a world of change. The the logos fascinated Greeks and Heraclitus onward. What keeps the stars in their courses? What controls the seasons? Order and purpose are revealed everywhere in the world. Why? Now think about that for a second. The Greeks were thinking, how is it that there's a terminal rate of velocity? How is it that water can evaporate? How is it that water can freeze at a certain level? I mean, think about this. They were looking for something that was holding all things together. Because if all things didn't hold together, we wouldn't be here. If all things didn't hold together, Tim Jackson wouldn't have a job in chemistry. Because chemistry wouldn't make any sense. Physics wouldn't make any sense. Biology wouldn't make any sense. All of those things would not make any sense, but there has to be order. And so when when the Greeks were hearing that the word, and Plato said, again, it may be, get this, Plato, and I think John is playing right into what Plato is saying. Plato said, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. That's Jesus. So, When in verse 14, if you're a Jewish believer, or if you're an unbeliever, or if you're a Greek person of philosophy, and it says in this word, this, this ordered person, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that is an astounding revelation. You mean to tell me that the thing that is holding all things together, 
the, 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 this person has taken on flesh and he is dwelling with a people. That is remarkable. Now we celebrate that at the Advent. That's what we celebrate. I mean, this is John saying that before the world, you know, Jesus existed, but all of a sudden he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. Now, this word, if you're a Jewish person or if you're tied into, and the word became flesh and dwelt, this Greek word actually means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle among us. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's one of the um, old translations. We will have seen that there. There's this idea that there, this, when they would read this, the, read this word, if you're Jewish, you're going, wow, this, this person is dwelling in flesh and he's tabernacling among us. And you think back to the days of Exodus and you think about the tabernacle. Now, what is the tabernacle? Th- throw the slide up there that I have for the tabernacle. Now, there's a few things for us to think about. Now, the tabernacle, in the course of you know, the, the history of the Jewish people, was the place where God lived. But as we look at this picture, we see that it is at the center of everything that they did. So God redeemed his people out of slavery, and then he led them in the wilderness wanderings, and he led them, and it was the tabernacle, was the place where God lived. Now, James Boyce would say that there are five reasons that tabernacling among us was important here. The first of which was that the tabernacle was at the center of the camp for the people of Israel. So when it says that Jesus dwelt among us, Jesus tabernacled among us, we hearken back to the days of the tabernacle and we see that everything is arranged around the tabernacle. I mean, matter of fact, all of the tribes would face towards the tabernacle. And you see, you know, whether it's you know, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon on the east side, or Gad, Simeon, and Reuben on the south side, and Benjamin, Manasseh, Ephraim on the west side, and Dan, Dan Asher, and Naphtali on the north side, and then the priests around. Everything meant that it was centered around. Now, in the midst of this, what do we take from that? It's that Jesus should be at the center of everything that we do as the people of God. He is the center. So if the tabernacle is dwelling among us, all of our faces should be pointed towards Jesus. All of our lives should be surrounding Jesus, and we should be loving Jesus more and more. Uh, Put the second slide up there just to to illustrate this. So we think about the tabernacle, and, and really when we think about the tabernacle, the book of Hebrews does this so well. It talks about all the different parts of the tabernacle. Uh, that we find in the book of Exodus, and it points about how every aspect of the tabernacle is actually pointing to Jesus. Everything. You know, essentially, we see the tabernacle playing itself out. You see, not only was the tabernacle was the center of the camp, but it was the, number two was it was the place where the law of Moses was preserved and obeyed. And when we think about the, the law of Moses, it was given in Exodus chapter 20, you know, up on a mountaintop, and the first set of stone tablets was destroyed, but the second set was actually taken, and it was actually placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't know, like, I grew up, you know, I was born in 1975, so probably the very first time I ever heard of the Ark of the Covenant was when Indiana Jones was trying to steal it away from the Nazis. But it became a huge figure back in the 80s, and you're like, oh, the Ark of the Covenant, you know? Like, I didn't know anything about the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant is, is the center because it has the mercy seat, and it's where the law of God um, resides. 
But when we think about the, the tabernacle, you know, whether you're thinking about the bronze altar of sacrifice or the lampstand meaning illuminating or the, the altar of incense bringing up fragrant prayers to, um, to God or the holy of holies, all of these things are pointing to Jesus. So when it says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word of God became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory, it's remarkable. You see, thirdly, it was the dwelling place of God. In the tabernacle, in the holy of holies, between the wings of the cherubim that stretched out over the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, there was the Shekinah glory that symbolized God's presence. The glory within the holy of holies symbolized God's presence. It's where God dwelt with his people. And all of his people wanted to be close and pointed towards him. It was the place of revelation. It was also not only called the tabernacle, but it was also called the tent of meeting because that is where God met with men. So when Jesus shows up and we call him the tabernacle or this, he tabernacled among us, it was that God was dwelling with men and that we are literally meeting with God. We understand who God is, what he has called us to be, because when we look at Jesus, he teaches us who we're called to be. But then also, it was the, the place where sacrifices were made. Um, go, go to the last slide, just the last slide I have. Just, you know, this is the Ark of the Covenant. This is just the depiction of it. We're not really sure exactly what it looked like. But this is, when we look at this, the mercy seat is the place between the outstretched arms of, of you know, those, those birds, um, of those eagles there. And so the glory of God would reside there. Now, what was in the, the Ark of the Covenant it was Aaron's staff that had budded. It was um, some manna in their wilderness wanderings. And it was the law of God in the two stone tablets that were given uh, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. And here's, here's the beauty of what we see here. And the reason I have this up there is because once a year, a priest would go in there and a priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice at the mercy seat. And so God, who would, who, his, whose presence would be dwelling at, at, at the mercy seat between the, the wings, um, there would be blood like, sort of on top of the ark because in the ark was the law of God. So I want you to think about it in this way. And this is, I, I love this picture because this is a wonderful picture of the sacrificial nature of what Jesus does for us. You see, when God looks upon the law, he only sees that we transgress the law. Because the Ten Commandments, we break the Ten Commandments all the time in thought, word, and deed. And because God is looking down upon the law and we stand there, we must be judged. But what happens is when the priest comes and he offers a sacrifice and the blood is there, he sees the blood in between the, the mercy seat where God's presence is. There's blood between the law and God and that sacrifice is what satisfies and makes atonement for the sins of the people. That's enough. You can turn those off. You see, when Jesus said he was the tabernacle and he dwelt among us, when John says that, he's alluding to the fact that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Matter of fact, when we think about Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16 um, describes this in detail for us. Leviticus 16, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. But Leviticus 16, verses 1 through 15. It speaks about this. 
I'll pick it up in, in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd of a, for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. And it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony that, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, thus, he shall make atonement for the Holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. So this is what we see, right? When he puts the blood, the blood stands between God and the law so that our sins are forgiven. That's beautiful. That's glorious. So how can a sinful man, corrupt by nature, approach a holy God how can, how can we know him? How do we find him? How can we come close enough to him to understand him? How can we become acceptable before him? How can we know the forgiveness of our sins? How can we know God's peace? How can we find fellowship with the one in whom we live and move and have our being? The answer is the tabernacle and in the Christ whom the tabernacle prefigures. At the cross of Christ, the perfect sacrifice is performed. Jesus dies in our place. And we go from being an enemy of God to the beloved child of God through our adoption into his family. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, there's another section in here, and this is interesting because I think we misapply this or we, we're, we're confused. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us or he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son. So the glory of Jesus. How do, how, do we, how do we see this glory of Jesus working itself out? You see, a Christian is someone who sees in Jesus the glory of God. Others may see him as a valued teacher, social reformer, or even a pitiful victim. But the Christian reads the gospel and sees the glory of God in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus also showed his glory as God. In the transfiguration or the healing of the sick, he manifested his glory, showing divine glory and power. But Jesus also showed his glory in his human nature, right? Jesus as a human showed his glory through humble obedience, through a humble, obedient servant life. You know, to us today, a glorious person is one who rises above the crowds, ascending to the place of wealth and prominence. Matter of fact, yesterday as I'm, I'm watching college football, um, you know, I keep hearing, like I was watching, you know, like, uh, I don't know, I, was, I think it was the Florida-Kentucky uh, game, and they were highlighting and saying how great this Florida quarterback was and how great this Kentucky quarterback was. And so they're all ascending to glory, Right? as they're throwing interceptions, and, and they're trying to say that, that all of these guys are, are glorious, and they're, and they're pursuing glory. And that's our picture, is like, who's going to be the next Tom Brady? Who's going to be the next Kurt Warner? I mean, that's our picture of glory, right? To us, a, glory, a glorious person is one who rises above the crowds, ascending to the place of wealth and prominence. But Jesus showed us a higher glory. Though he had the power that created galaxies, he subjected himself to human scorn and abuse. He allowed his heart to break as he wept over Jerusalem. He allowed his body to be broken, his hands and feet nailed to a cross by creatures he had made, and he gave up his life so that we might live. The truth is that at first glance, Jesus was not very glorious. He had his moments but what did he accomplish? Leon Morris, the, the theologian, says that this. He assesses Jesus' earthly achievements. Here's what he said about Jesus. He preached to a few people in an outlying province of an ancient, long-since-vanished empire. Even though he was not often in the capital, the center of affairs, but in a remote country area, he taught a few people, gathered a few disciples, did an uncertain number of miracles, aroused a great number of enemies, was betrayed by one close follower, and disowned by another, and died on a cross where is the glory? And yet, at the end of his life in John 17, 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, we tend to think that glory requires pomp and the glitter of the world. Gold medals and trophies and great stock portfolios and showy houses. But God shows us through Jesus that real glory is not like that. It does not depend on pageant, pageantry or show. Real glory is seen in humble service out of devotion to God. Leon Morris goes on to say, this is who Jesus was. Where people needed help, he helped them. Where there were sick, he healed them. Where there were ignorant folk, he taught them. Where there were hungry people, he fed them. All the time he was seeking the needy. He did not haunt the palaces of kings and governors. He was not found in the high places of the earth. All his life was among God's little people, those who in one way or another felt their need. And wherever there was a need, he was found doing lowly service. That is what Christ came to do. And that, brothers and sisters, is glory. As you become more like Jesus... The call to us is that we would become more glorious. <laughs> that we would help more. That we would heal more. That we would teach more. That we would seek the needy who need Jesus. That's what glory is. You know, one of the great benefits 
at our churches, um, we get to send our graduating seniors off to a, a foreign mission trip. And I think one of the things that is beautiful about that, besides it being a great rite of passage, whether years ago we went to Romania, now they go to Costa Rica, one of the things that's glorious is they get to see humble servants of Jesus working with children, displaying the simple glory of our Savior. It's a beautiful picture of what it is to follow and to become like Jesus, to serve and to teach and to care and to love. That's who Jesus is. That's who we're invited into a relationship with. Jesus is amazing. Not only do we see his glory there, but in John 14, one, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, but that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, he goes on to say this, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I love this picture of grace and truth. Matter of fact, I pray that for myself, that when I interact especially with my own children, Father, help me to have the words that are full of grace and truth. That I would not just be truthful without grace. Because you know when I'm truthful without grace, I seem angry. But I got to tell you, there are times when I'm like, oh, you know, no, it's okay. You can do whatever you want, regardless of what the truth says. That might be loving, but that is not full of truth. And if you allow your children to do everything without correcting or disciplining them, then you are not a good father. Matter of fact, you are a terrible father or mother. And that we need to be full of grace and truth. And in the midst of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus is that he was always the correct amount of grace and truth at every point of every time in his entire life. And, and it's amazing. You know, when, when Jesus, when, when prostitutes came and, you know, wiped his feet with their hair, and we'll get to that in John, Jesus looked her, raised her up and said, your sins are forgiven full of grace and truth. Did she need to be admonished that what she was doing was wrong? No, she knew it. But Jesus raised her up in the midst of grace. And what we see in the midst of this John 1, 14 through 18 is he says that there's grace upon grace and his grace never ends. Like it's not that it ever is extinguished, but it just flows forth from heaven. Grace upon grace upon grace. His unmerited favor flows forth from heaven and it is eternal and it will never be extinguished and it will never run out. And yet, you know who he was really truthful with? It was the Pharisees. Well, you read the Gospel of John, you read the synoptics and Jesus took Pharisees, put them over his knee and disciplined them. And we go, that's sweet, kind Jesus. Look, here comes sweet, kind Jesus. Why does he have that, that, that whip and cords driving people out of the temple? Because he's full of grace and truth. You know, he took tax collectors like Zacchaeus, and he said, I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to give you a purpose in your life. And, you know, to Pharisees, again, he, he spanks them. Jesus, full of grace and truth. I mean, Jesus is... Perfect. Now, the other thing that's happening in verses 14 through 18 is what John is doing is John is trying to juxtapose Jesus in comparison to these other men that he writes about in verses 14 through 18. 
So we see, full of grace and truth. And then he talks about John. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, when we rank people, Jesus is certainly above John the Baptist, but there was a group of people that actually thought that John the Baptist was greater than Jesus at times. And so we say, in comparison, John the Baptist is much more diminished. Matter of fact, not only is John the Baptist more diminished than Jesus, or not as high, but he also says, but Moses. And if you're a Jewish person, Moses is your hero, right? He's the one who led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land, right on the precipice of the promised land. He gave them the law. He wrote the first five books of of the Old Testament that we know as the Pentateuch. So Moses was essentially, I mean, up until Jesus, Moses really was the goat, right? The greatest of all time. You know, I mean, that's who he was. And what John is saying is, he's not the goat. John the Baptist is not the goat. There's nobody that can outrank Jesus. For from him, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now that's a a really interesting Greek idiom there. It's grace replacing grace. So it's saying that we get grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So that every day when we wake up, sinners, all that you are, me too, by the way, you know, we get to run to Jesus and we are, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is poured out upon us. And and that is so comforting. So comforting when I look at my life and I think about all the ways that every day that I fall short of the glory of God, that I sin in thought, word, and deed every day. The way that I am sinfully selfish and I am all about me. I live in a very boomer-centric world. And if all of you would just live in my very boomer-centric world and get on board with the orbit around me, my life would be much better. That's why I need grace. That's why I need to behold the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when I come to him, I know that my sins are many but I am forgiven. And there's a part, and and this is where this particular part, we think that maybe at some point his grace will run out for us. But in John it says, no, you get grace upon grace. If you have trusted and believed in Jesus, there is grace upon grace in your life. You see, the law came through Moses. And what does the law do? You know, the law is good. You know, there's a threefold function of the law that we think about theologically. The first function is this. It's a mirror reflecting to us both the perfect righteousness of God and our own sinfulness and shortcomings. Augustine wrote this. The law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and, be, and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. Essentially, the law reveals our sin and places a deep burden upon us. The same burden that Pilgrim and, and, um, or in, in, in Christian and Pilgrim's Progress had upon his back. That burden. The second use of the law is it's a civil use and it's re- restrained evil. But the third use of the law is it's meant to function as a guide for those who have been you know, saved. We think about the law and we go, this is how I can follow God and and become more like Christ by pursuing him. I I love um, what John Bunyan, who's attributed as saying, you know, about the law and the gospel, the law and grace. You guys probably have heard this before, but it's run, John, run, the law um, commands, but neither gives me feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. 
It bids me fly and gives me wings. You see, the law condemns us. It shows us our sin and our need for salvation. But when Jesus shows up full of grace and truth, he says, you are forgiven and loved and I am the sacrifice so that you can be reconciled to God the Father. Everything that was pointing to, to, the, to, to Jesus in the tabernacle is fulfilled in Jesus. You know, Ralph Erskine, a Scottish preacher, similar, similar little phrase, he said, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. You know, when we think about the fullness of grace and truth that Jesus is, and we think about the salvation that we have, again, we should fall more in love with our Savior. Let me conclude with just this quote from William Plumer, speaking about who Jesus is. He goes, if these things be so, that if he is full of grace and truth, right? If Jesus is full of grace and truth, we should study to magnify Christ both in life and in death. He is the Savior and such a Savior. He is mighty to redeem and strong to deliver. The law, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. He counted it not robbery to be equal with God, yet made himself of no reputation. He lays his hand upon both God and man. He is at once an almighty arm and a brother's heart. None is more exalted, yet none stoops so low. None is mightier, yet none is more tender. He shall not break the bruised reed, nor quench the smoking flax. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged until he sets judgment in the earth. He is meek and lowly, merciful and mild. At the same time, he is the omnipotent Jehovah. There is none like Jesus. Our beloved is more than any other beloved. He alone can do sinners good. His blood atones. His obedience to the precept of the law is a perfect righteousness. His intercession is all prevalent and unspeakably glorious. This part of his work is still going on. It is the perpetual fruit of his love. We are deeply interested in it. And listen to what he says about the perpetual and the constant intercession on our behalf. He said, suppose a king's son should get out of a besieged city and leave behind his wife and children, whom he loves as his own soul. Would this prince, when arrived at his father's palace, delight himself with the splendor of the court and forget his family in distress? No. He would come post to his father and entreat him as ever he loved him that he would send all the force of his kingdom to raise the siege and save his dear family from perishing. Nor will Christ, though gone up from the world and ascended into his glory, forget his children for a moment who are left behind. He ever lives to make intercession for them. Him the Father hears always. Isn't that sweet to know that Jesus right now is at God the Father's side making a prayerful request on your behalf? Reminding him that he has paid the penalty for their sins. Reminding him of all that he loves and cares for. Again, as we think about the idea of Jesus, sweet Jesus, we think about communion. For how are we reconciled to God the Father except through the death of Jesus on the cross?
How are we made adopted children into his family? It is through his death and sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. He makes atonement for our sins. You see, this bread represents his body broken for you. And this cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We see this in, in the tabernacle. We know that unless blood covers over the mercy seat, that the priest would die. Unless the shedding of Jesus' blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus' blood was shed so that we might have life and be reconciled to the Father. Now this, this cup will always remain juice and this bread always remains bread. But what it signifies is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And it reminds us that we are saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, if you delight in Him, if He is your Savior, if He is your prophet, priest, and king, that he invites you to this table. This is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, but rather this is the table of the Lord, and he, and he invites all those who trust and believe in him for their salvation to come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And I think, too, as you come forward today, I want you to think about this. How can I become more glorious like Jesus? How can I help and heal and teach the needy? How can I emulate him? Because look at what he has done for me. He has saved me. He has washed me. He has invited me into the, invited me to the table of the Feast of the Lamb. This is just an appetizer of the great wedding Feast of the Lamb. One day you and I will celebrate with our King and we will feast. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would set apart these common elements from their common use and you would pour forth grace upon grace upon grace upon us as we commune with you. Father, help us. Help us to see and to know Jesus and make us more like him. Father, we're all sinners. We err every day in thought, word, and deed. And Father, this reminds us that we are forgiven and loved. So as we approach, Father, may we know that we are loved deeply. And I pray, Lord, that we would then love more earnestly. So Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.